Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Yay! Happy Saturday. Hello. Welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom and... This is the show where we talk about all things related to God, the Bible, and real life. And we are out on hiatus right now, but we are excited to still bring you some really awesome content with this series of Rewind shows. And as usual, we're asking you to help support the show by hitting that like button, sharing this broadcast with a friend, and commenting on the stream. We'll try to be on the the live uh, premiere when it goes up. So talk to us. Let us know uh, your thoughts as we go through it. Tonight's show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. The Theology Mom podcast. And Family 210 Clothing. That's right. As well as our friends from Impact 360. Um, so we went back in the archives for these Rewind shows. This is one of my selections. Uh, show 16. Mm-hmm. All the way back in July 2019 is when it first aired. Yes. And it didn't get that many views on YouTube. That's because people didn't really know that we had a podcast yeah. or who we were, things like that. We're just so, starting out. Yeah. We're bringing it to you again. It is a conversation with Krista's friend, Dr. Mike Gurney. Yeah. He's a former um, professor of theology and philosophy at Multnomah University. And that's where he was working at the time. Uh, Unfortunately, he's not at Multnomah anymore, but um, we had a great conversation. I'm so glad we have this recording and a development since this time is, well, first of all, in 2019, CFBU didn't even exist. Yeah. And Mike Gurney is now um, a member of our Academic Advisory Council. Maybe tell people a little bit about what that is. Yeah. So our Academic Advisory Council is really a council of PhD individuals who serve to undergird Krista and I as we speak or do research. They look over um, our content and make sure that we are staying academically integrous. That's right. So we invited Mike to come on back in 2019 to discuss some concerns that we had like three years ago um, about biblical literacy among pastors. Um, Mike was seeing at that time and a lot of his students, you know, just less and less biblical fluency. Well, now, more recently, we have this Barna study came out a couple of months ago um, that really is uh, looking at pastors. I'm just going to show this graphic really quick. We're not going to go over it in detail, but if people watch the video, they can see, um, you know, where different people, where different pastors fall, non-denominational, evangelical. They even have black pastors mm-hmm. that Barna surveyed, Catholics, Pentecostals. But a couple things that just really jumped out at me is reincarnation is a real possibility. Oh, wow. One third of non-denominational and evangelical pastors, Catholics was almost 50%, black pastors 70%. Uh, believe that reincarnation might be a real possibility. Um, another one that jumped out with me to me is determining moral truth is up to each individual. Mm-hmm. There are no moral absolutes. We've got f- almost 40% of pastors who are evangelical 
almost 80% of Catholic pastors believe that and about 75% of black pastors. So kind of scary. It is. Which might indicate why so many Christians are confused about what the Bible says. And based on my attitude, some days I might come back as a frog. (laughs) Reincarnation's a thing. No, no. So we were having these concerns all the way back in 2019. So let's go now to listen to our interview with our friend, Dr. Michael Gurney, about biblical literacy in the church. Well, I... I'm so glad you came on because um, I there was a number of kind of a cluster of issues that I wanted us to talk about together. And um, there was a Ligonier sponsored study with Lifeway a couple of years ago, and I came across the results recently. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting to kind of take the temperature of where we are as a church in terms of our our knowledge. And uh, this was particularly a study looking at biblical literacy in what are called evangelical churches. And they had a very particular definition of evangelical. And I'm going to throw Bob off by doing the slides in the wrong order here, but there it is. Look, he's a professional. Uh, Evangelicals were defined by the study as those who had uh, the, the believe the Bible is the highest authority for what they believe that it's important to um, have a personal relationship with Jesus as their savior, that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that removes the penalty of sin. And those who trust in Jesus alone as their savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So that a fairly specific definition of, of what an evangelical is and, and who they were serving, uh, surveying. But alarmingly, I mean, well, first of all, before I get to the alarm, the, the, on the upside, like their view of the Trinity was pretty solid. I think I have a graphic on that here that um, I, I'm glad to see that 97% of evangelicals affirm a view of the Trinity that that yeah. is sound, you know, that God is one true God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, yay for us. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know when I've heard a sermon, the last sermon I've heard on the Trinity, but hey, we're, we're doing okay in this department. We can pray for the other three percent. <laughs> but then look at this next uh, graphic here. We have religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about objective truth. We only had 60% agreeing with that. And that is a little disturbing. There's one more I wanted to show us. Um, that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. We had 51% agreeing with that statement. So that just was, a, and people can go to the um, stateoftheology.com website to find out more of the um, stats there. But this is the one that really alarmed me, is 78% of evangelicals affirmed that Jesus was the first and greatest created being by God. I don't know if Bob can pull that. There it is. 78%. Now, Mike, what theology is that reflecting? <laughs> well, this goes back to the, the, the heresy uh, with Arius. And of course, uh, you guys were just talking earlier about the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
who hold that, you know, who hold that view as well. And there's other groups out there, you know, but so that's a view that's been around for a long, long time and unfortunately uh, persists. And I think the fact that, you know, that e people who would self-identify as evangelical and yet would affirm something that the church rejected that uh, originally at the Council of Nicaea and following as heresy um, gives it, I think gives us a pretty good snapshot that uh, there is a lack of theological understanding in the church today. And, and I, I, it saddens me. I think this is not just with the, you know, the typical person in the pew, even among, I think, pastors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and this is, this is a, a very disturbing trend. Well, I'm wondering as a, as a university professor who's been teaching theology for 20 years, um, are these findings consistent with what you've seen from Christian college students coming from Christian homes? Like that, that there's some things they're solid on and then there's other things like we've, there's quite a lot of confusion. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it's my, it's been my experience and, and it's, I see it as a trend uh, at my university. Um, but in my interactions with others in academia, uh, especially in Christian academia, this is this is not isolated. It's pretty broad. Um, that uh, yeah, there is a, a growing level of ignorance, and and what I think is even interesting to me is, it's not just theology. It's what I'm seeing now is even it goes all the way down to the Bible. I mean, it used to be because you know theology, in my view, kind of builds on the foundation of biblical knowledge. And or at least it should, yeah. <laughs> especially in evangelical. Uh, what I'm noticing is that in even among evangelicals, is you know there's always been I think historically, uh, given the history of evangelicalism, American evangelicalism in particular, uh, there's always been there's a little bit of leeriness towards uh, theology, you know, and uh, but the Bible is always kind of you know it's kind of this sacred, you know, source and uh, you know so you know so. I remember back when I first started teaching um, or even when I was a student before that, you know, people were like, okay, I love the Bible, but theology, I don't know. You know, they were kind of suspicious. Now what I'm seeing is it's not just theology that they have an antipathy towards, but I would say maybe not antipathy, but an indifference towards the Bible. That, that, that the Bible, in, in fact, I find among my students, and I think this is fairly representative, that a lot of my students struggle with biblical authority. They struggle with the relevance of the Bible. And I see this as part of a bigger problem. I see this as, I, I think our culture today, I would, I would describe our culture has been having what I call an epistemic crisis of authority. So talk to us a little bit yeah. about that authority. Like, what do you see yeah. happening there? Because the idea of biblical authority, maybe if we just define that is to say that the Bible is is our ultimate authority. We ought to conform our life and our beliefs to what the Bible says. But you're saying you see a crisis of authority. Yeah. In other words, who should we believe and why should we believe them? And I think this is I think this is in part a larger issue in terms of the culture. I, I attribute a lot of this to the the corrosive effects of postmodern thinking, postmodern thought, um, that has raised. It creates what we call a suspicion, uh, hermeneutic of suspicion. You know that, that we that we are suspicious about any anyone or anything claiming to have authority. 
Now, well, originally postmodernism was, you know, kind of in the ivory towers of academia. It's eventually has has always ideas always do they they filter their way down to the mainstream culture. So postmodernism might be understood as like the idea that truth is more uh, a a result of your experience and your personal perspective. And so the idea that somebody has authority and is speaking truth, it, it, it kind of goes against that, that worldview. Yeah. Just as that one, that one statistic that you showed, you know, that belief in objective truth, you know, postmodernism directly challenges that idea that there's objective truth. We can have all have our own truths, but there is no truth at a capital T per se. And so when you approach, when you have that mindset then, and you apply that to religious believers, including Christians, then you, what you have is, well, we, and I even have, I've had my students say this, well, you know, we have our truth as Christians, but Muslims have their truth. Mormons have their truth. Buddhists have their truth. And who am I to say that their, that their truth is not truth? After all, we're not supposed to judge. You know, I mean, one of the most quoted verses of the Bible today is what? Judge not lest ye be judged. Right. You know, that's, and that's, and of course, <laughs> what I try to point out to people is that's, that's a self-refuting statement. Because to say that is to make a judgment about people who judge. In other words, all of us have to make judgments. Right. Intellectual and moral judgments. It's the nature of being an intellectual and moral person. Well, even what we're going to talk about later is outrage culture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody's making moral judgments. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so, in, in, you know, in the name of tolerance, we're intolerant. I mean, it's just, it's a really, I think, a, a massive confusion that I think is, is that's in the mainstream culture and now has filtered into the church because I think the church has, we have not done a good job of educating the people in our pews, including the young people. And so especially our young people, and, and I, I think part of it, and I think it's a complex issue, but I think part of this is public education. Uh, you know, I, when my kids were involved in an online charter school, I, I would go through their public school textbooks and it was amazing how subtle some of these ideas were and they were gradually, you know, and it's, it's, it's these ideas have, you know, so now, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just it taken has almost, pardon the pun here, gospel truth that everybody has their own truth. That's just an assumed idea now so widely by, by so many in our culture. And so when you, so if you have that mindset, then and, and I think it, that intrinsically discourages Christians from saying, OK, so, you know, what's my best recourse when it comes to my faith? Well, I'll make my faith personal and about experience rather than have any kind of intellectual substance and content. About you, how I feel. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So I am sitting here and absor- absorbing and learning. And one of the questions that I'm wondering is what do you think is happening with pastors like from the pulpit that's not trickling down into the pews or with like youth pastors that's not trickling down into the youth that's that is um, like countercultural almost because we are supposed to step outside and not be, I would say, a part of kind of the the cultural norms that we're seeing regarding things like truth and subjective truth and objective truth and 
so how do how are pastors and youth pastors like participating in continuing that culture? Does that make sense? No, that's a great question. Uh, you, know, you know, my sense is that what we're seeing as a trend, especially in I think the the evangelical non denominational churches, that um, especially your mega churches, where a lot of these pastors have no formal theological training whatsoever. And so what, what we're seeing, you know, what I'm seeing is the tendency in this, and this isn't just megachurch. I, you know, I mean, it, this is, like I said, it's complex. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of blame to go around. Uh, but is that, you know, what we see, first of all, is that the tendency for churches now is to do topical sermons. Right. Now, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with topical sermons, but the problem is, is the way it teaches people how to read the Bible. It kind of teaches you to take a verse here and a verse here and a verse here. And then it it doesn't, I'm noticing there's sort of a loss of reading through a book of the Bible in context and seeing how all the pieces of the parts of that particular book hold together. That kind of sermonizing has Mm -hmm. almost gone the way of the dinosaurs. You hardly ever get that anymore. Yeah. I mean, you rarely hear people do expository preaching uh, talking about the Bible as a narrative. I mean, there are some good counterexamples to that that are out there. Uh, just, to, uh, you know, there's a thing called the Bible Project. Yeah, I love the Bible Project. Alumni of Multnomah. Uh, I've seen some of their stuff. It's really good. And yeah. I think it's very, very, and I know uh, some of the people behind it, they were students of mine. Uh, you know, those, are the, but for the most part, what I've seen as a general trend is that one, we don't, we don't, how we teach the Bible or how we use the Bible even in the church, in the church and out of the church is very uh, ad hoc, very piecemeal, not very well thought out. And it doesn't, it doesn't respect the context of the text. I mean, proof texting has always been a problem. I mean, uh, that's, that's, you know, especially in teaching, as someone who teaches systematic theology, I have to drill it into my student's head that when you look at a passage, you need to look at context, context, context. And uh, it's a mantra I I use. They all know it now. Um, But, but I think when the pastors are, are, with the way they handle the scriptures in the pulpit, I think is a model to the people in the pew. And, and it's just not, the people are not getting how to read the Bible. And then of course, uh, unfortunately, a lot of what happens in, in some of these churches is the only time that scripture is used as a kind of a pretext for what they really want to talk about. Exactly. I mean, so many of the sermons, is just one verse. Yeah. And they don't even hardly spend any time on the verse. They just use that as an introduction to their topic. They want to talk about. Right. And like I said, once again, I think there are a lot of issues that we need to talk about, cultural issues. We need to talk about things like sex. We need to talk about things like marriage. We need to talk about things like, you know, uh, there's a lot of issues out there that we do need to talk about. Even politics, as dangerous as it is, I I think that we need to talk about it, not in the sense of kind of promoting a particular candidate, but how do we think about these things? I I teach ethics. Uh, You know, I find most Christians have not a clue on how to think ethically. Well, I want to go back to a point you made earlier about how so many pastors aren't even going to seminary anymore. I saw a a story in Christianity Today that Liberty University, which has one of the largest ministry schools in the country, was laying off a bunch of faculty. Um, I've heard of other schools starting to lay off faculty, and I'm wondering what is going on. Uh, do Do you think that Part of this trend is that fewer people are going to seminary. Yeah. You know, I know from some, some statistics that I've seen 
that the tr general trend in seminaries today is, is downward and it's been going on for quite some time. This is not a new phenomena. Um, it's, you know, uh, and of course my own school, we started out as a, as a Bible college uh, and we just, we've had to, we had to expand our offerings to stay, keep our doors open. I mean, that's just the reality. And I, and I'm, you know, I'm all for, you know, I'm not opposed to a liberal arts, a Christian liberal arts university. I think, you know, like Biola, um, you know, Multnomah, I think we're, you know, those aren't bad things. I think those are, you know, I think it's great to have a business program or a English program where you integrate that with a Christian worldview. But the problem I find, I, the trend I see though, is that in order to do integration well, you have to have enough familiarity with Bible and theology to do that. And what I'm seeing is the the, the, the cutting down on both the seminary level as well as an undergraduate collegiate level, cutting down the, the number of Bible theology required hours, um, which then, you know, as a consequence, they really don't get, I think, sufficient exposure uh, to get to, to be able to have any kind of adequate understanding and ability to think well about the Bible and theology. And so, this, it, 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 so it's, it's kind of a, on the one hand, you get, we're getting students that come in that, and what I'm seeing is the students that come into our, our this has been, like you said, this is a trend that's been going on for quite some time, it's not new, that are coming into our school, even kids who've grown up in the church who know almost nothing about the Bible, let alone theology. I kind of think, I kind of think of it like a, a biblical <laughs> fast food service. You know, yeah. like we're able to go through and get done so quickly, but we're not getting the nutrients that we need to live a healthy lifestyle or, or to have healthy information um, regarding theology. I mean, it used to be when I first started teaching, we'd have a few students that were fairly new Christians. So you, it's not surprising they wouldn't know much about the Bible. You know, now. It's, it's almost like completely flipped where it's like you have a few students who do know some things about the Bible and the rest of them are, are even kids who've grown up in the church who just are, I mean, it's just, I had a colleague was telling me, uh, this was about a few months ago, he was making reference to a biblical story and it was a fairly well-known story, it wasn't obscure and half the students in his class were like, we have no idea what you're talking about. We, oh, wow. You know, they were just like lost. And the other ones that did have some idea, they still weren't, you know, they were, they had this vague idea, but it was, you know, and it was just, uh, I mean, I have, I've gotten to the point now where in class, I have to, I have to, I cannot presume that my students know anything about the Bible. Which wow. is so interesting because we live in the internet age where knowledge yeah. is so much more available. I mean, when I tell people that I went to seminary before the invention of the internet, people are like, What? I said, we had to go to this thing called the library and there was this card catalog and I had to look things up in there and people just, it blows their minds. It, and yet I feel like things have gotten more watered down since the internet. It, instead of getting smarter and more informed, we're actually less informed. Yeah. I, I think it makes, makes for a dangerous, dangerous um, condition because Given the exposure we have to various ideas now that, that you know, th I mean, in human history, we have more exposure to ideas today than any, any time in human history. I mean, it's just incredible how accessible information is, both good ideas and bad ideas. And, of course, you, all you have to do is go on, on 
Facebook and, and make a claim about the Bible, and you're going to get all sorts of people who have very different opinions. So a lot of a lot of them may be skeptical and cynical, and there and you get access to even scholarly uh, literature that is very critical of the Bible. So. You know, when you get that kind of access to information and then people who are putting forth arguments and, and assertions and ideas and you don't have a good handle on what you believe and why you believe it, you are really susceptible to, to, to at the very least, confusion. And, and I'm finding more and more even and we're seeing this like with Barna and some of these other studies that we're losing our young people. I'm wondering with so much information that is available, if people are starting to more and more have this presupposition that I am knowledgeable, like I have all of the information at my fingertips, I can get the knowledge that I need. I don't really need to study because it's all there anyway. And I probably know more than what I think because of the things that flash before my eyes so quickly. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great observation. You know, it's kind of, it's, isn't it kind of ironic on the one hand, we want to deny objective truth, and yet, you know, at least knowledge has it's been traditionally understood, particularly in philosophy, but even more broadly, knowledge involves truth. You can't have, you can't know something that's not true. So, so given your observation that people are claiming to know things and yet deny objective truth, it, it makes for a very confusing um, culture of belief in, in in knowledge and truth, and. You know, and, and I frankly, that's why I see a lot of Christians, especially younger people, what they do is they just kind of, they just kind of keep their faith to themselves. Yeah. You know, um, and they, they rely upon their experience. And I'm not saying experience isn't, isn't a valid aspect of being a Christian. I think it certainly is. But then the problem when you start relying purely on experiences, everybody has experiences. I mean, every religion has you know, every religious believer has their own experiences and even atheists have experiences. So how do we judge between, you know, experiences in terms of determining what's true? Right. So it becomes a really a quagmire. What changes have you noticed over the last several years uh, in terms of the courses offered in seminary? I know that Talbot, even where we graduated from, they had an announcement a year or so ago of reducing their credit requirements. Like there's not as many courses that are actually required anymore for their programs, which I found super disheartening, but I'm wondering like what you see of what classes are being eliminated, what classes are being shortened? um, What trends are you seeing? You know, it used to be in almost every major denomination that in order to be ordained and have a, a D-min or an MDiv, uh, you would have to have training in the, in the original languages, you know, have to have some proficiency in Greek and Hebrew. That's gone. I mean, you know, it's, um, I, I, rarely do you find people now who are pastors who have competency, uh, at least the newer pastors that are coming out. Um, so I think that was one of the first ones. And of course, this has been, this trend started quite a while, you know, I think back probably in the 80s and uh, into the 90s, that trend started. And now we're seeing it in terms of theology. I mean, certainly some of the, I think there's been weaknesses in our curriculum. Uh, I think the issue of cultural engagement, which has always been a struggle for the church. I mean, historically, the church has always struggled with how do we engage culture in a meaningful way? And there's finding that balance between, you know, um, 
you know, this kind of antithesis versus synthesis. And, you know, so these are complicated issues, but I, I think now we're seeing this kind of push more to, to, to engaging culture, but it's still, um, you know, it's, uh, uh, I don't know how to best describe it. it. It just seems like, I mean, you know, there's some practical theology classes as well that, that, um, that once again, I, I don't think they're necessarily, um, uh, I think they're good topics and stuff, but I think it's really shifted. And almost the idea is reflective of the culture that we've shifted away from the theoretical to purely practical. Right. And like I said, I think I think you know we need to uh, we need to address practical theology. I, I'm not against that, but you have to have enough of a, of a basis, right? Knowledge of basic theological doctrines and concepts to, to build off that to, to have an adequate approach to doing practical theology. And, you know, this has always been, this is especially American phenomena. I mean, America, we Americans have always been pragmatists. And, and uh, in fact, that's where, you know, in philosophy, the school of pragmatism originated in America. That's not a coincidence. So we've always had this very strong pragmatic impulse going all the way back to our founding. But I think it's become even now more so with a postmodern twist. In fact, in philosophy, this is called neopragmatism. Oh, that's a new term for me. I haven't heard yeah. of that. Richard Rorty, probably, uh, who's now deceased, but he was probably one of the leading uh, neo-pragmatist philosophers, you know, very much, in, in, you know, whereas the early pragmatists like William James and Charles Sanders Pierce and some of these other guys, you know, they, they believed in, in an idea of objective truth, but with the neo-pragmatist, it's, it's, you know, tr- truth, there is no objective truth because it's purely pragmatic. Oh, interesting. So yeah, I think that's, and that's, and that, that's really shaped how our culture at large. And I think the evangelical culture, including our seminaries. Well, along those lines, then I've seen a shift of like seminary being considered less and less important, less and less yeah. valuable at all as an experience. And, you know, there's this old joke about how seminary really is just cemetery and people yeah. go there to lose their faith. Actually, my seminary years were some of the best years of my adult life. I really enjoyed that season quite a lot. Um, I was young and newly married, and I found it quite interesting to to be learning all of the things about Scripture. But I'm wondering, like, how would you respond to people that say, you know, Jesus didn't go to seminary. The disciples didn't go to seminary. They just had practical ministry experience. Why do they... Why do do people even need to go through this rigor in, in order to shepherd God's people? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair point. But I would, I, I think I would respond by pointing out that keep in mind that Jesus and his disciples lived in a very different culture. In fact, a culture that was saturated with the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, you as a young Jewish child, one of the first things you re- you learned to to memorize was the Shema. And your whole life was built around the Torah. It, it was inculcated you in you. Uh, and of course, when you look at the disciples of Jesus, they spent three years with Jesus in a pretty intensive study. <laughs> you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, study with Jesus. And, you know, and especially, and of course, once again, early on with Jesus, you're dealing with almost a purely Jewish culture. Then when, when of course, Christianity starts expanding, and particularly with the apostles to the Gentiles, Paul, Paul is by all accounts. I mean, every every Pauline scholar out there talks will acknowledge that Paul was well educated. 
Now, he grew up in Tarsus, which was a major learning center in the Mediterranean. Uh, I, I, when I look at his, discuss, his speech at Mars Hill in Acts 17, uh, this guy knows, he knows not just his own beliefs as a trained rabbi, he also knows the, the, the predominant philosophical schools of his day, Epicureanism and Stoicism, because he's able to engage in their, I mean, just what brief description we get from Luke, Paul nails it right on the head about the Epicureans and Stoics. He understands them. He's able to quote their poet, their philosopher poets. So that tells you that Paul is 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 pretty well educated. Um, and I so I think that and I think when you look at the early church fathers, all of them, even before this was even before the creation of the university, you know, in the in the, in the Middle Ages, there was a recognition that education is really important. Now, once again, the primary means was through discipleship, but it was a very intensive discipleship. And so I, I think that. Uh, I think one of the positive trends I see in seminary education today is uh, the recognition to integrate what happens in the classroom with what happens in the church and, and trying to do develop programs that are more hybrids where you're, you're engaging intentionally. I know at Multnomah, we've tried to do this with, with churches. And so I think they're, you know, and that's, a, I think that's a good trend. I, you know, one, one of the few positive trends that I see. Um, so I think that's, that's valuable. And I think that has been a weakness in seminary education. Um, I- yeah, and I would second that. I mean, like, as wonderful as my education was at Talbot, one of the things that it did not do was, like, I never took a class on how to actually um, pray for the sick or cast yeah. out demons, like things that Jesus actually taught his disciples to do that I now have to do regularly in ministry. I had a class on the theology of, of demons, but like, actually, what do you do when somebody comes to you and has those issues and, and how do you deal with them and how do you cast them out? Um, that has been something I've had to learn totally after the fact, um, as I've worked in ministry. And so, you know, I can understand and, and somewhat sympathize with the need for more practical ministry engagement. But at the same time, there's a lot of teachers that I enjoy. There's one teacher in particular, my husband, I enjoy listening to on YouTube, but sometimes he falls into certain errors. And I just always say, I really wish somebody close to him would advise him to take a a couple classes in systematic theology. (laughs) I think it would really help him. Yeah. I think that's been, you know, this, like I said, this is a complex problem. And I think one of the issues that's been around for a long time uh, has been, we, we, you know, and this goes Long, I think long before this crisis of epistemic authority that I've been talking about is that we, you know, the, the gap between the Sunday school and the se- seminary classroom is huge. And that's been a problem. And that, and that's, I think a lot of that's on the seminaries, but another one I would tie into this and in, in, in here, I think Dallas Willard, um, uh, you know, who wrote several books on this topic talked about the lost art of discipleship. We don't do discipleship in the church or in the seminaries. Uh, and, and this is something, and, you know, and, and I'm not sure what the, what the solution is, is because to do this, to, to do discipleship well is hard. It requires time. And it's very difficult in our, in our culture, in our lives, in the lifestyles that we lead, you know, we're very, very fast, fast paced and we move around mobility, move around a lot. So it's really hard to do these things well, to, to, to provide a, a good context for discipleship. And, and, and as a consequence, and I think just the general trend in how churches do church, is not conducive to discipleship. Big churches, uh, it's all about the music, 
uh, or even if it's a church that has a strong preaching program, still what happens, you know, I mean, you do have small groups, but a lot of times it's almost like most, a lot of small groups, you know, I'm probably going to step on some toes here, but it's almost like a lot of these small groups are more about shared ignorance than they are about, you know, having actual discipleship where you're, you know, um, uh, you know, where people are actually learning things and older Christians are walking alongside younger Christians and not just in terms of what they believe, but how they live out these beliefs. And, and so, they, like I said, these are these are complex issues that, that have a number of factors and causes. Uh, there's not a simple solution to any of this. And, uh, you know, I, I think for me, sometimes I, get, I can get really depressed when I start thinking about this stuff. And I just have to remind myself that when I look at I look at the history of the church, I'm reminded about God's sovereign grace and, and his ability to, to take us at our worst and use us for great things. Yeah. And, and so for me, that's my, that's my hope, you know? Um, but, but also I think we have to respond to that. We have to respond. We have to say, how am I part of the solution rather than part of the problem? Amen. What, um, I, I have a huge interest in kids and parents. And so sure. one of my questions, it's, questions are is um what would you say to parents to help them in discipling their kids or help helping them what would help them in turning the tide from the biblical um illiteracy that is happening within the church to raising kids who are biblically literate yeah well that's a it's a great question monique um i wish i had an easy answer to that and as a father of two, it, it's, it's a struggle. It's both, you know, I have two teenagers and, you know, and I, I think it has to start with in the home with being real and authentic, you know, and one of the things I hear a lot from my students who grew, most of whom have grown up in Christian homes and they struggle with hypocrisy. They see it. I mean, not just, I mean, not just their parents, I mean, in the church, I think we have to be real and authentic in our faith and be honest and say, look, I don't always live up to these Christian ideals. I'm striving to, but I don't always live up to them. And I think we, if, if our kids see how important the Bible is in our life and how we try to use the Bible, even if, even imperfectly, but we use it to, to shape our lives, to make our decisions, uh, to, to inform our values and, and, and to cultivate the virtues that I think are consistent with being a Christian, what Paul calls the fruit of the spirit. Um, then, you know, that I, I think, it's, it's, you know, I think it's more about what we do rather than what we say. I mean, we can sit there. I mean, I, and I in fact, I always, one of the things I observe is some of the kids we get, and I've seen this at others, I saw it at Biola as well. You know, the most rebellious kids came from homes where the parents were just, you know, hardcore, you know, very strict, uh, you know, and, and, and there was a Bible verse behind everything they did. And it was just, they were kind of pushing it on their kids in a way that just was, you know, overwhelmed, you know, for the kids, they just, they weren't given room to breathe. And, and, and of course the, the kids and kids are really good. Uh, my kids included at perceiving our weaknesses and our, and our inconsistencies, dare I say hypocrisies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's about being real and authentic and just trying to live out our faith in, in a way that's, that just, it's just, it's authentic. Yeah. We're going to be having a guest on the show in the future. My friend, Natasha Crane, who really specializes in exactly what you're asking, Monique, is about discipleship as parents and how do we incorporate conversations, intentional conversations 
around theology and apologetics issues with our kids. And I can't wait to have Natasha on the show because it'll be an awesome extension of, of this discussion of getting into some practical uh, application of, of those issues. And I think, Mike, it's so important um, that you nailed it, like the issue of authenticity. Um, sometimes just telling your kids, like, we might know in our heads why we're making certain life choices, but it's important for us to speak them out and explain them to our children. I do this because I, I'm i going over here to bring a meal to someone in a hospital because I'm doing this, um, helping the homeless because my faith informs me to. And just making that an intentional part of our conversation about why we do what we do and not just why do we believe what we believe. And it, it really has to be both. Yeah. I, I like to, I teach ethics and, you know, in, in my view, ethics is really our theology applied. And one of the things I see is that a lot among my students is, and I think, like I said, this is, I think, fairly representative of evangelicals is the reason why we do things, the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing is because, you know, we're, that's what God says. And, and it creates this almost legalistic mentality. And, and I, and I, I think it's important that, yes, I think God has given us certain moral commands and we were to follow them and obey them, but it's not just done because out of a sense of legalistic obligation. It's done out of a sense of love and joy. I love God, what he's done for me, the fact that he's brought me into a, a redeemed relationship with him. And that as a consequence, the outgrowth of that is that I want to follow him in obedience. And, and I, I think one of the things we have to work against is, is this a culture that just buys into moral relativism. And, and, I, and I even hear a lot of Christians say, well, you know, um, you know, we're free in Christ and we don't have to, um, we don't have to, uh, you know, we're, we don't want to be legalistic. And, and I agree, we don't want to be legalistic. But on the other hand, we don't want to go the other extreme as well and just say, well, it's it's just everything's fair game and I can do whatever I want because I'm in Christ. Uh, no, right. if Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Right. And, and but I think and so bringing that here. So it's really important when I when I talk with my kids, when I go through when I go through making decisions and especially, you know, that and often they involve a moral have a moral component to them. It's important for me to explain to them why I do the things that I do, why I make the choices that I make. And um, that it's not just a sense of, well, here's a Bible verse. Right. Reason, I mean, there's a reason why, for example, I mean, you know, the big issue is the sexuality. There's a reason why God commands or, or, or has designed sex to be within the parameters of marriage. It's not that God is a cosmic killjoy and he wants to ruin our sex lives. In fact, I think there's empirical evidence to support the fact that if we follow God's ideals for sex, we'll have a more satisfying sex life than if we just engage in this hookup culture that's out there. Yeah. You know, and so explaining that to our kids, and like when I talk about sex in my ethics class, it's amazing to me when my students tell me that they've never, you know, that this is to, almost a lot of this is new to them. I mean, they, they understand they're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, you know, basically just say no, but to explain to them why. Yeah. You know, and and then it is, and I think that's what we have to be able to explain why we believe the things that we believe when it comes to about theology or when it comes to ethics 
more about practical Christian living. We need to explain why. Yeah. We have to take it deeper than that. But of course, once again, I think part of the problem is for a lot of Christians, they can't take it deeper than that because they really don't know. Yeah, they haven't informed themselves of the why a lot yeah. of times. So, yeah. well, Mike, it's been great to have you on. I'm so well, glad you that you're willing to do this. Thank you so much. Yes. And um, I'd love to have you on again sometime. Maybe we yes. can talk about some more theological topics. I always thoroughly enjoy interacting with you and just glad to introduce you to uh, our All the Things family. So thank you so much. And well, thank you for having me on. Yeah. And so my friend, Dr. Michael Gurney, everyone. Thank you. All right. May the Lord be with you. Yes. And also with you. Wow. Talking about the Wayback Machine. I, if we, hey, if reincarnation is real, can I come like reincarnated as a 2019 Monique? She was thin, okay? Like well, 20 we, pounds ago. We, we started the ministry. We don't go on as many hikes anymore. I know. <laughs> My goodness. But you know, I love, um, I love Mike's heart in presenting all of scripture, presenting the truth to his students, presenting something that, you know, I don't think he's intentionally presenting something that's not, you know, heard of in churches. I think his heart is just to present the truth. Yeah. And the sad part is that this isn't talked about in many churches. Yeah, that is really sad. It was such great wisdom. We really hope you enjoyed the conversation. So much timeless content, even though it was all the way back in 2019. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we're able to bring it to people and um, just thankful for Mike's friendship yes. to us over these years and his contribution to the ministry. So be watching for him uh, in the future. He's going to probably have a blog post coming out next year. Yes, so. he will. All right, friends, that's a wrap for this week. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week with another awesome Rewind show. Rewind. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.